This week, I had enough. Every morning, I watch as people stick a meager seven grams of old, stale, sub-quality, tasteless, and over-roasted coffee pods into the Nespresso machine to get a pathetic taste of Hashem's life-giving liquid gold extraction to the world. I decided it was time to invest in the real thing. It was time for the morning kolal to upgrade to a Breville Precision Brewing Machine, order high-quality specialty beans from Five Senses Roastery that could be shipped to me the day after roasting, giving people a vibrant, flavorful coffee experience to complement the life-changing Torah we learn at the Morning Kolal every morning. So I look on Facebook Marketplace for a slightly cheaper machine, and I see that my friend's son has posted the exact machine that I'm looking for. I thank Hashem for the kiss, reach out to Adam, and organize a time when I can pick up the machine. We meet up, I grab the machine, get a bit carried away talking about our coffee setups, and I ask Adam for his bait details to send the money. Adam says, you know, you're a close friend of my dad, and this is being used for community learning. Please don't pay me for the machine. I tell Adam, no way. I need to pay you for the machine. It's not negotiable. I come home with the machine and tell my wife what happened. And my wife makes this face at me and asks, why do you always insist on paying for things? Adam's dad is well-to-do. He founded Skype and sold the company for over $1 billion. He wants to support the Morning Kolal Initiative. And here I am, this broke rabbi insisting that we pay hundreds of dollars for this coffee machine. Why? In this episode, I want to explore the findings of behavioral economist Dan Ariely, how his findings explain the change of attitude in the Jewish people when it comes to the building of the Mishkan, and to finally unlock the deeper reason of why I insisted on paying $200 on that darn coffee machine I could have claimed not to be able to afford. We look at the building of the Mishkan, Hashem's dwelling place, in this week's Parsha, and we can't help but think, what is going on? Until now, Hashem has gone all out for the Jewish people. He yanks them out of slavery. But not just haphazardly, Hashem does it in style. Ten plagues, each of them, more flamboyant than the next, makes them all millionaires with riches galore, splits open the sea for them. Social media would have exploded and crashed back then had it existed. Hashem then drowns their enemies in the most magnificent display of how far he was willing to take this and breaks his own systems of management over the world to show his love and care for the Jewish people. If that wasn't enough, he gives us breakfast, lunch, dinner, all on the house of the most delicious, nutritious, and wholesome food direct from heaven via Heaven Eats. He gives us the manna and provides us daily water from a rock. Every single time Hashem takes his display of love and care for us up to the next level, what's our response? Meh. We're ungrateful. We complain. How could this be? With the exception of us, Yasher, the Jewish people complain every single time. 
The food isn't good enough. We're thirsty. The price of kosher meat is too high. Why do I have to pay so much for private school tuition? Can't the show lower my membership fees? Why does the rabbi take so much time off? Why does a mezuzah cost $70? But then we read this week's Parsha, and there's a dramatic shift in the attitude of the Jewish people. Hashem asks us to build the Mishkan, and we start going on a building fund rampage. The people are pouring all their time, effort, resources into the building of the Mishkan to such a degree that Moshe Rabbeinu has to scream, Dio, it's enough. Stop flooding me with more valuables than I know what to do with. What happened that caused the shift in attitude in the Jewish people? Why did we go from passive complainers to proactively assuming leadership and owning the project of building a space for connection with Hashem? To find the answer, let's take a look at the findings of behavioral economist Dan Ariely. A study done in 2011 found that people would pay 63% more for furniture that they had assembled themselves in IKEA than for similar pre-assembled items. But how could it be that people would pay more to do more work? It made no sense. So Dan did a series of experiments on what he called the IKEA effect. He got volunteers to make origami models by folding paper, asked them how much they were prepared to pay for it, to keep it. They said 25 cents on average. Then they asked other people how much they'd pay for those very same origami uh, folding paper models. And they said, on average, only five cents. Five times more people were willing to pay to keep their own item that they put their own work and effort into than other people were willing to pay for that very same item. Ariely found that the same goes for IKEA furniture. The success of IKEA comes from the idea of providing pre-designed and fabricated furniture with written instructions and to have the consumer assemble it themselves. What he found is that people felt a sense of pride. I made this, and therefore, they valued the furniture at more than it's actually worth. This is the success of furniture giant IKEA, now valued at $16 billion. The same concept could be found by looking at Betty Crocker cakes. In the 1950s, General Mills' brand of instant cake mixes called Betty Crocker was falling under. They bring in the father of motivational research, the psychologist Ernest Ditcher, to help turn things around. After studying the situation, he recommends that General Mills replace the powdered eggs in the mix with the instruction to add fresh eggs. Huh? He explains that by increasing the baker's work, Betty Crocker would now make the consumer feel a heightened sense of ownership and value toward their cakes. What started as completely unintuitive advice turned Betty Crocker into the leading brand of instant cake mixes of its time. What we learn is that we tend to overvalue the things that we are involved in making. The greater your personal labor, the greater the love. For the first time, Hashem changes the dynamic of his relationship with the Jewish people. Now, instead of Hashem doing all these amazing feats of love and miracles for the Jewish people, he commands them to make something for him, the Asuli Mishkan. Hashem, who by definition has and encompasses 
everything, asked us to do something for him. The Gemara Megillah 31a says, wherever you find Hashem's greatness, there you find his humility. Hashem was giving us a chance to become creators too by building the Mishkan. Hashem asks in Yeshaya, what house then can you build for me? He doesn't need a home, but he provided us with the opportunity to build it for him in order to inculcate the IKEA effect. Hashem was giving the Jews a chance to finally put in their own skin in the game, their own effort. Whatever they had, gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, crimson yarns, linen, goat hair, ramskins, leather, akasha wood, balsam oil, best of the industry, jewels. Some gave their ex expertise and skills. Some gave their valuables. Some gave their time. Everyone had the opportunity to take part. Men, women, children, instead of the Jewish people taking a free ride, they finally invested something of themselves into their relationship with Hashem. The word teruma literally means lifted. Their contribution that they gave lifted them. When we lift up to Hashem, we realize that we ourselves are lifted. What we learn from all this is that if we want to truly own our Judaism and our relationship with Hashem, we need to follow the IKEA effect formula. We need to put in our own personal toil and effort to keep us aware of the value that our relationship with Hashem provides for us and the extent of sacrifice that we're eager to give up for it. If you want your kids to value Shabbos, they need to participate. Give them a dish to come up with and prepare some kind of cereal that they can buy. Find something that they're excited about and can own themselves to put their own investment into the mitzvah. You think my child's Parsha drawing looks better than the ones in the book? Well, maybe. <laughs> but that's what connects them with the Shabbos experience. Don't let them take a free ride no matter how much you want to make Judaism. Uncumbersome on them. They have no way of appreciating it when it's given to them on a silver platter. The same with Torah, the same with the Sukkah, the same with the Esrog. When you hand them the mitzvot, you're handicapping their ability to invest themselves into it. But more importantly than that, don't let yourself take a free ride in your Yiddishkeit. My Rebbe Rabloi picks the wheat for the matzos himself and spends hours organizing shifts and sweating it down on a Peloton matzah grinding bike in his Yerushalmi Bekasha so that he can have self-ground flour for his matos. I once asked him, Rebbe, isn't it better to spend the same money on matzah from a bakery that has years of experience and expertise getting the matzah from dough to baked in the quickest time to minimize the fermentation as much as possible? He looked up with me, beaming with pride, and said in his thick English accent, but it's my mitzvah. This is the reason I wanted to pay $200 for my coffee machine. I wanted to spend good money making the investment to provide everyone who comes to the shear every morning with nourishing coffee and Torah. Take ownership over your mitzvahs. Never take a free mezuzah. Don't let your cleaning help make all your Shabbos for you. Don't let your rabbi feed you the Torah that will change your life. 
own your relationship with Hashem, put every ounce of self-effort into your learning, into your growth, and pay good money for everything that will further your evolution towards the Almighty. Power.